This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 247, Attached. Welcome into Mission, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, right? Right. I'm John, John Ch- Champion. You're you're John Champion. Yes, and you're Ken Ray. Ah, I feel like I should have known that one. Each, Each week, week on, on Mission, Mission Log, Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek. Ah, oh, this is weird. Taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings. And seeing whether all of that holds up today. This This week, week, man, my mind is like blown. It's like I'm surfing your side waves or something. I'm just like, I'm like in your head. Really? Really? You you don't think it could be that we do this literally every week? Okay, maybe. This week, Attached, the one where Captain Picard and Dr. Crusher are totally in sync, while the Cass and the Prit are anything but... I've got trivia coming up, but, but first, first... I'm going to prove to you there's some kind of psychic something going on here, man. I mean, like, right now... Right now, you're... You're thinking of food? Safe bet. Well, <laughs> I am... I am actually thinking of Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I knew it! Uh-huh. When you hear how much care Blue Apron takes with sourcing its ingredients, with changing up recipes, with delivering food directly to you, you might think it's too expensive, but it's not really. Unless you're eating ramen noodles every night. Uh, if you're doing that, yes, uh, it's expensive. Otherwise, it's actually affordable. Now, uh, I've had a recent experience that tells me that eating ramen noodles every night might not be inexpensive. <laughs> Depends on where you're getting those ramen noodles, and yeah. I know where you got them. And yeah, yeah the, you could run up a bill there. Yeah, yeah, I've been traveling a lot. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But here's what I will yeah. say about Blue Apron. Uh, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, along with pre-proportioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And um, if you're like me, it will step up what you do in the kitchen as well. I know that there have been times in the past when when I'm cooking uh, with Blue Apron that I will learn about whole new ingredients or whole new, like, you know, uh, flavor combinations that I didn't know about uh, before, uh, you know, I got their stuff and and started cooking with it. Speaking of which, I I hinted at this a minute ago. I've actually been traveling now for a few weeks, John, Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. and that has led to a, a tremendous amount of eating out. (laughs) Right. And and while all of that has been good, uh, I haven't been doing the home cook thing. I know, though, that you have not been traveling as much. Uh, What's some of the stuff that you've been turning out lately? Yeah, uh, well, you know, funny that you should mention ramen, Mm -hmm. uh, because one of the recipes that I did recently that I really liked was miso chicken ramen. It was so good. Uh, It's kind of a a grilled chicken and then uh, roasted corn and the ramen noodles and then a a cold salad of uh, tomatoes and cucumbers. So it's this really refreshing, light take on ramen that I loved. And then another one was uh, sweet and sour pork bowls with uh, peppers and uh, miso roasted eggplant. Uh, so those are all things that I love, and it was all very tasty together. 
Now, you see, you mentioned miso in there twice. One of the things that's really interesting mm-hmm. is, sure, sometimes you're going to use the same ingredients again, but Blue Apron, it goes out and finds different recipes for you. So even though you might use some of the same ingredients, you're not going to be getting the same recipes over and over again. So you won't be eating the same thing week after week. Uh, John told you about some of the stuff that he's already cooked, some of the stuff he might be cooking coming up. Um, garlic butter shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. Yes. There you go. Or, uh, <laughs> or soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. And of course, you know, there's a ton of other stuff um, uh, for you to check out. Yeah, but we would encourage you to find out for yourself. And what you can do is you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so don't wait that's blueapron.com slash mission log blue apron a better way to cook and a huge thanks to blue apron for sponsoring this week's show now if you were surfing my side waves gangnam style or however you would know that next i'm going to tell people how to get in touch with us you cool if i do that you cool I'm okay with that. I mean, and I like the reference to Sai in there. That was good. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. I am not going to pretend it's a psychic thing. I am going to pretend like I know how this show goes. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> yeah, time now. Yeah. Time now for trivia with Mr. John Champion. Oh, Mr. John. All right. We have a, a little bit of trivia for you here this week. Uh, this week's episode attached was written by Nick Sagan. Now, how many people do you know with the last name Sagan? <laughs> um, I'm going to vote for one. Okay. And yes, Nick is the son of Carl Sagan and Linda Saltzman. Now, Nick was only 23 when this episode came out, and he was already a produced writer in Hollywood. This is the third script in his professional career, and uh, he'll have one more on Next Gen coming up, and he sticks around longer, though, as a writer and story editor for a handful of Voyager episodes, too. Um and, and his career spans TV and uh, a little bit of film and novels and video games. He, he really has been quite prolific from a very young age. And actually, my favorite piece of trivia about Nick is that when he was six years old, he recorded a greeting on the gold record, which is traveling the cosmos on the Voyager space probe. So his greeting was, quote, hello from the children of Earth. And that spacecraft left our solar system in 2012, uh, so really just a couple hundred more years before it gets absorbed by a sentient alien machine race and then comes back to Earth to uh, to try to scan us into its memory databanks. Or so I've been told. All right. And uh, this episode was directed by Jonathan Frakes, of course, Commander William Riker. The last episode of Next Gen that he directed was The Chase. And he's got one more to go before we wrap up Next Gen. But of course, he will be back for Deep Space Nine and Voyager and his directing career just goes on and on 
Uh, let's see. I do love my locations. And in this one, we have uh, an, an oft-used Star Trek location that has a very prominent role here. Bronson Canyon, uh, sticking in for the landscape on Kesprit, where uh, Picard and Beverly are trying to escape. And um, you know that I also love my props. There are so many returning and rented props in Marek's quarters on the Enterprise. I believe... Riker calls it a bunch of junk, but um, we've seen so many of those props before. And uh, man, oh man, there's one shot where director Jonathan Frakes uh, puts that plasma lamp right in the foreground. Really get a good look at some of that uh, space hardware. Let's talk about guest stars. Uh, two really of note that we need to focus upon today. We have Ambassador Morik, played by Robin Gamel. Now, Robin is Canadian, and he has worked pretty much nonstop since the 1950s. Um, among the huge number of TV guests and recurring roles, he shows up in a handful of memorable movie roles, too. He was in the first Austin Powers movie as a UN representative. And apropos of our episode today being written by Nick Sagan, Robin had a small role in Carl Sagan's Contact. And Lauren, the Pritt representative, is played by Lenore Kasdorf. She's from New York, but went to school part of that time in Thailand while her father was stationed there in the U.S. Army. And like Robin Kamel, she has also had a long and prolific career. While this is her only Trek appearance, she has a lot of genre cred. She was in Babylon 5, uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, The Six Million Dollar Man, and she even had a small role in starship troopers and um and really that's it that that's really the the major highlights that would be of interest to our audience mm. yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah oh hang on uh she was a guest star on kolchak the night stalker i knew it in a galaxy full of monocultural planets the enterprise has found something amazingly rare a duocultural planet In orbit around Kesprit 3, the captain and the doctor are doing breakfast. Dr. Crusher is talking about uh, something to do with Nurse Ogawa. Oh, sorry. The captain wasn't really listening. He's distracted by their mission. The Kess of Kesprit 3 want to be admitted to the Federation. The Prit, also of Kesprit 3, want nothing to do with the Federation. Or any off-worlders, for that matter. Nor would the Kess come to think of it. That bothers Picard. Every other world to enter the Federation has entered as a whole, unified world. They'd settled their differences. They were ready to become part of a larger community. Picard and Crusher are about to enter into a very interesting debate when Commander Riker calls. Ambassador Marek of the Cass is ready to see the captain and the doctor. Lieutenant Worf beams them down, then receives a disturbing call. That two Enterprise officers never made it to the Cass. Act 1. Picard and Crusher come to in some sort of cell. They're fine, except for the things attached to their brain stems at the base of their skulls. It's perplexing, though answers come strolling through the door. Picard and Crusher are being held under the authority of the Prit Security Ministry. The charges are conspiring with the enemy, the Cass. The Prit know the Federation is forging a military alliance with the Cass. No point in denying it. The implants at the base of your skulls will soon sink to your psi waves and all will be confirmed. Picard says it'll confirm that they're not doing a military deal, but whatever. 
On the Enterprise, Data and Worf have confirmed that there's nothing wrong with the transporter. It looks like the Prit used a tractor beam to divert the captain and the doctor. Finding out why won't be easy since the Prit have refused all communication. Commander Riker says they'll have to work through the CAS, which means working with Ambassador Marek. Back in their cell, Picard is trying to figure a way out. The Prit guard drops off a tray of food, but hold on, that's not food on the tray. It's Beverly's tricorder. And on it, a map showing the way out and a code to open the cell door. Quietly, the two make their escape. Act 2. On behalf of the cast government, Ambassador Marek, now aboard the Enterprise, would like to apologize for what happened with the captain, the doctor, and the Prit. The cast government is ready to send in a rescue team on three hours' notice, though Riker's like, hey, hold on, why don't we try talking to them? Talking to them? They're a bunch of total Prits. Marek sees no point in trying to talk to them, and besides, they have no way to talk to them. No ambassadors, no back channels, no planet-wide emergency system. But these people, barbaric, xenophobic, though there's been no formal communication between the two groups in nearly a century, Marek knows that they have not changed. They're still a bunch of prits. Worf says he can find their radio frequencies and try to talk to them that way. Riker says they will try negotiation. In the meantime, Marek will keep preparing for the rescue, and... If it's not too much trouble, we'd love to work from the Enterprise. We think the Prit breached our security, which is how they knew when your doctor and the captain would be beaming down. Done and done. Worf shows the cast to their workspace. After a security sweep, they say the space will do nicely after they increase the security in the workspace. Thank you, Lieutenant. You may go now. On the planet, Picard and Crusher have to make their way through the fire swamp. Well, fire caves. Thankfully, there are no rodents of unusual size with which to deal. And something weird happens. Picard thinks he heard Crusher say something, but she didn't say anything. No time to worry about that, though. They have to flee. An explosion caused by a buildup of... <sighs> There's an explosion and they escape. Act 3. The Enterprise is called the Prit, and the Prit have hung up on them. Then the Prit call back. Specifically, Security Chief Lauren, the one who'd captured Picard and Crusher, calls back to tell the Enterprise to stop calling. If they don't, the Prit will have to take aggressive action against the ship. With that, she hangs up again. Worf says the Prit posed no threat to the Enterprise. Meanwhile, Marek has come back to the bridge with good news. A Kess operative has freed Picard and Crusher and left them detailed instructions on how to get to the Kess border. Riker wants to know how they were freed and how they'll get across the border. Though Marek won't discuss such a sensitive subject on the bridge, preferring the safer confines of his quarters on the Enterprise. Back on the planet, Picard and Crusher have taken a wrong turn, and something weird is going on. Crusher responds to something Picard was thinking, though hadn't said out loud. The transceivers at the bases of their skulls are just tuning to their psi waves. They're sort of synchronizing with each other's. The implants are transmitting their thoughts. Not constantly, but it is happening. Sometimes it's words, sometimes it's feelings. Like the fear of heights Beverly felt when she realized they'd have to climb about 30 feet straight up a rock wall to continue their escape. Picard felt her fear, and he encourages her to take it easy one step after the other. Thankfully, he does not suggest singing Frère Jacques. 
back on the Enterprise. Wow, Marek has jammed his quarters full of security equipment of his own. Also, he insists on utter secrecy. What he's about to tell Riker must stay in this room. The Kassav people on the inside and the Prit government. That's how he got Picard and Crusher out. The map that they were given will take them to a village in Prit territory, but controlled almost completely by the Kess. There, the Kess will make contact and walk the captain and the doctor across the border into Kess territory. The plan seems a bit brazen for Riker, though Marek assures him of its safety. And you know it's true because we still want to be in the Federation. We're not going to lose your officers. Speaking of them, they've made it out of the caves, and the psychic link between them is getting stronger. Picard thinks a little physical space might weaken the link, but instead it weakens them. The further apart they get, the more pain they feel. They'll have to stay close and deal with each other's thoughts and feelings. Act 4. Two roads diverge on the map, and Beverly's not sure which one to take. Picard is, except... No, he isn't. No, he's made a decision, though with a peek inside his brain, Beverly knows he doesn't actually know which way to go. Does he do this all the time? No. Though there are times when it's necessary for a captain to give the appearance of confidence. And the link gets stronger still. Picard says Crusher always has a cutting remark on the tip of her tongue, though she says she's learned to only think those thoughts, not say them out loud. She tells a funny story of an insult she once hurled, except there's pain behind it. And Picard feels that pain. He finds the sharing of thoughts compelling. On they go, and uh-oh, there's a prit guard on the pass above. Rather than continuing toward the designated village, the two decide to head for the border and try to find a way through the force field themselves. Back on the Enterprise, Marek is confused. Picard and Crusher never made it to the designated rendezvous point. But he's not confused. He knows what happened. Picard and Crusher were secretly meeting with the Prit the whole time to form a military alliance with them. Oh, it was a clever scheme. First, they pretend to lose their officers in the transport. Then, the Kes revealed their undercover operatives helping the Enterprise officers escape. But the Kes busted them out quicker than expected. Picard and Crusher needed more time. More time to make their bargain with the Prits. Um, you invited us, says Riker. We're not working with the Prit. You're seeing conspiracies everywhere. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go find my people. Marek says he thinks it's time that he and his people leave the Enterprise, which is A-OK with Riker. Nightfall on the planet and sitting around the campfire. It's the moment we've been expecting off and on for seven seasons. With no way to hide their feelings, Beverly finally learns that Picard was in love with her was, like, years ago, before her husband, Wesley's father, and Picard's best friend, Jack, died. Why didn't Picard tell her? How could he? How could he say that he was in love with his best friend's wife? Then when Jack died, he felt guilty. Well, he felt guilty before that, having such feelings for her. That's why he didn't want her on the Enterprise seven years ago. He wasn't sure how he'd react. Then slowly he realized he didn't have those feelings anymore. And now, they're friends. And with that, they say goodnight. Act 5. Ambassador Marek is back on the Enterprise, apparently to watch the Prit security chief Lauren hang up on the Enterprise again. 
Mark is unimpressed. He knows the Federation is working with the Prit. This little show won't convince him otherwise. We'll see, says Riker. And with that, he has Worf beam Maloran up to the Enterprise, kind of without her expecting it. She is understandably upset and has no interest in talking to Riker nor Marek. Both accuse Riker of working with the other. Back on the planet, Picard and Crusher are on the run, being pursued by Prit security. Back on the Enterprise, the Kess and the Prit are still accusing each other of colluding with the Federation for military advantage. And Riker has had enough. He assures Lauren that there is no way the Kess will be admitted to the Federation. Kesprit, he says, is a deeply troubled world with too many problems that need to be solved. While the Kess are a friendly, democratic people, they are driven by suspicion, deviousness, and paranoia. Though that might please the Prit, Lauren still thinks Picard and Crusher were spies. Okay, says Riker, if we don't get our officers back, Starfleet will be paying very close attention to your society. Your society that wants no attention from the outside. That's lots of starships contacting lots of people, asking lots of questions, maybe even sending down away teams. All because you wouldn't help me find my officers. Speaking of them, they've made it to the Kesprit border. Crusher works on a way to get through the force field, then pushes Picard through before it closes. He's on the safe side. She's captured, except the Prit guards get the word. Send up their coordinates. The Enterprise will beam both officers back up. Nightfall on the Enterprise, and Picard and Crusher are enjoying an intimate dinner, talking over the intimacy of their shared thoughts. Of course, they're not sharing thoughts anymore. So, what should they do now? Now that they know how each one feels. Perhaps, says Picard, we shouldn't be afraid to explore those feelings. Or, says Crusher, perhaps we should be afraid. And with that, and a couple of tender, though somewhat chaste, kisses, the two officers say goodnight. The End Penny for your thoughts. <laughs> uh, Brenda was mean to me, and I don't remember the next line. Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, sir. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, this will come as a surprise to you, I think. Uh, yep. Breakfast. Oh, oh, oh. Big, big breakfast. So yeah. much breakfast happening on that table. Ridiculously huge breakfast. Mm-hmm. I will have what I will from now on call the Picard mm-hmm. coffee and a croissant. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I respect that. I would start with that. I'd move on to the uh, shrimp and grits that I'm just going <laughs> to say was on that table. Um, probably like a, a nice casserole of some sort. A side of bacon. <sighs> Good you know. Lord. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I said I've been, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breakfast. I know it's the most important meal of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving it to others to take care of it, though. Okay. <laughs> A little bit of uh, Star Trek history building here. Uh, We get a date, 2150. We have a world government. Um, But we don't get to hear why Beverly's Australia, uh, one of the old nation states, I like that. We don't get to hear why her Australia analogy doesn't work. Yeah. She's like, oh, well, if Australia had stayed out. Yeah, hold on. That's not really fair because, oh, there's a knock at the door. (laughs) We don't get to hear why that wasn't fair, sadly. Isn't that convenient? Uh, It it is. Although I would like to see the extended cut, the deleted scene, where Mm -hmm. they have the 25-minute debate about that. Because That would be awesome. I would so be into that debate. You know, there are a lot of people who say the worst thing about The Phantom Menace 
was the fact that it had to do with a breakdown in trade negotiations. Mm -hmm. That, to me, was the best part of The Phantom Menace. That and Darth Maul's, uh, you know, double lightsaber. I don't know how I can pick just one worst thing about The Phantom Menace. So. Hey, well, no, I, that's why I'm saying the trade negotiations actually are the best part, I think. Well, that and Darth Maul's double lightsaber. Yes, I, I yeah. I, and, I, his, I, and his makeup, I would say. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of other movies, it was great to see the costumes for Battle for the Planet of the Apes back in rotation. <laughs> the, the, the old one, not, not the one that came out this summer, no, I'm assuming. Because no, no, no. yeah. I, I, as we record this, the remake or the, or the one that's also called that just came out this summer. Yeah. And I didn't get to see that. I'm I'm going to guess, though, that the one with Woody Harrelson doesn't have the, you know, almost like sleeper outfits mm-hmm. or the uh, or the 1970s battle for the Planet of the Apes outfit. They are very adorable, though. Um, so Jean-Luc Picard did not want Beverly on the Enterprise seven years ago. I like it when we have a, a, a nice reference that pays off seven years ago. And we're going all the way back to Encounter at Farpoint, mm. uh, which is pretty great. And we also have a, a slightly less important reference, but Beverly's Fear of Heights, which was indicated in Chain of Command uh, Part 1, part of that secret mission where she was supposed to go with Picard. And, you know, it was all that climbing. Who wants to do all that climbing? Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, also, uh, the climbing, of course, reminded me, as I said earlier, uh, we didn't have Frère Jacques. Yes. Which, <laughs> I'll true. be honest, I'm glad about that. Although I would have really gone for a verse of the Laughing Vulcan and his dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, anytime is a good time for that. <laughs> I, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, I uh, I mentioned in the trivia how uh, part of this was shot at Bronson Canyon, and mm-hmm. I, I love... The location shooting in this episode, really, really good stuff. Um, and it's funny because I, I could literally walk over there and, well, maybe not as of this hour, but it would be just full of hikers and people and cars and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but it is shot really well in this episode. In fact, there's a shot toward the end. It's in Act 5. Uh, uh, Beverly and Jean-Luc are on the run. And there's this wide shot, but I, I think with a... Um, a, I want to say a relatively small lens to be able to do this, but the camera is far away. So they're just framed like at full height and you kind of lose all that background. It's just a, a great looking shot. We needed more location shooting in the last few episodes. Like mm-hmm. maybe it would have been nice to have seen Lake Elnar and Dark Page. <laughs> You know, um, now, now I get it. They're, they're in this sort of dream state, the sort of so it's not quite real. Things aren't real. And we just saw the Arboretum. So we're just sort of pretending like the Arboretum is this dream state stand in for Lake Elnar. But how cool would it have been to actually, oh, I don't know, you could find a, a body of water in driving distance of L.A. and uh, and go there. But um, at least they made up for it in this one. It wouldn't have helped. No, but, but you're right. It, it would have been uh, it would have been nice to see that because I mean that that actually did really make that episode worse. Now that you mention it, I mean yeah. it's sort of like the, the arboretum looks a whole lot like a miniature golf course. Yeah, and then like Anar or Elnar, whichever one it was, yeah. um, also ends up looking like a miniature golf course. Right, pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Not even a fun one though. Like <laughs> like they've been like a windmill or like a dinosaur. They'd be like, oh, okay, well. Yeah. I question the use of that location, but I like its kitsch value, so I'm going to go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I hate to say it because I, I, I hate to be picky about Star Trek, and I know that I've uh, talked about things that irk me, like wallpaper. But look, uh, Star Trek is still 
as of the release of this episode in 1993, terrible at civilian clothing. <laughs> well, don't get me wrong. Uniforms are great. Since 1965, yeah. the uniforms on Star Trek are awesome, and I love them. No question about it. Yeah. But Picard and Crusher at the end of this episode, what they're wearing, just, um, oh my. I'm going to go Blackwell here with you. Okay. Um, I would say mostly uniforms are fine. Uh, the motion picture, only good for its kitsch value as far as the uniforms go. Nope, nope, no, 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 because yes. Admiral Kirk, he had the two-tone, the, the white and the gray, and he had that <sighs> short sleeve. Mm -mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, which I hated. Um, oh. Everybody everybody had belt buckles, but no belts. It really just made no sense. There it's were, I the mean, look, future, man. Every it's other the future. Okay, okay, well, then here is where I have to argue with you about today's clothing. Everybody knows in the future there are three outfits. Mm-hmm. There are the uh, the shirts that are sort of like wraparound. That's for guys. Right. There are the big skirts with lots of folds because that's how we know it's the future. So many. Or, of course, uh, the leftover blockbuster uniforms. Did you all ever watch The Electric Company? I feel like this planet was named by that show. Kess. Prit. Kessprit. I think I've referenced this a couple of times on our show before, but it, it's such a cool thing, and it fits, so I have to bring it up again. If you've not listened to our episode where we interviewed Will Wheaton, go back and listen to that, because we mentioned a letter that Patrick Stewart wrote to Gene Roddenberry. And in that letter, he mentions how he and Gates McFadden had always played the flirtation of... Picard and Dr. Crusher, that, that hint of a relationship that they, they had and may potentially have in the course of next gen. And, um, I, I have to say that I was opposed to the idea. I was always opposed to the Kirk and, uh, Yeoman Rand idea. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm mostly opposed to the idea of Picard and Beverly, but this was done so right. Um, that, that scene by the fire, the true confession moment is played just right. And I have to wonder if this isn't a little bit of that trickle down from, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart saying, Hey, we, we've been sort of, you know, playing the subtext is trying to squeeze a little something else out of our characters besides their jobs. And I wonder if this is, it, it, did that letter get around or is this a moment where Nick Sagan is just watching next gen and going, Hmm, how much more can we do with this? Hmm. You know, and, and, and getting that into a script. Um, here's the thing that I like about that scene. I like that the reveal about their feelings for each other is rooted in the tragedy of Jack Crusher's death because it gave everything so much more weight, so much more meaning. It's not just some silly crush that has sort of been a maybe, maybe not over the course of seven years. It's something that is really rooted in conflict and really rooted in character. Um, and man, the the looks on their faces in that scene just absolutely terrific. Yeah, um, I I know that in this part of our show, this is the discussion part of our show where we talk about the big themes and the morals and explore those ideas. This is not really the section of the show where we we pick apart a thing that we liked or we didn't like and make a judgment call. But this is so much the heart of the episode. 
that um, I feel like it's kind of remiss if we don't just park it right here and talk about it a little bit. Yeah. And as long as we're going to as long as we're going to bring it up, I have to say, too, it's another one of those cases where when somebody decides to write for someone besides Patrick Stewart, they can really turn up with an amazing performance. There has been just there have been many dumb lines uttered by Gates McFadden. Mm-hmm. And it is not that she's a bad actress. It is that we need a chair to say something in this episode. Oh, well, we can't really have a chair say it. So who's in the room? Oh, yeah. well, give it to yeah. Gates or give it to, you know, give it to whomever. Same thing for Troy. Same thing for Worf. Same thing for everybody on this cast at one time or another. Mm-hmm. I would say that Riker has had, I'm sorry, I would say that Frakes has had um, a decent amount of time to shine. I would say that Marina Sirtis has had a decent amount of time to shine. Certainly Patrick Stewart. It's practically the Patrick Stewart show as far as oh, like yeah. actors who get to shine. I'm sort of sad that that we can almost count on one hand the number of truly amazing moments that we get from Gates McFadden. And yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's about her. I think it's about the writing that's given to her. Mm-hmm. And she was given something absolutely amazing to do here. She did not have to play a prop. She did not have to play an extra. She got to play a part with Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And that's that's a really wonderful thing to have seen, especially and then especially the way that scene is constructed as well. I mean, it, it, nobody is actually saying anything, right? That, it, mm-hmm. Like Patrick Stewart isn't saying I was in love with you. She's saying, oh, my God, you were in love with me. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, and they're sort of like giving each other the things that they it was it was it was really well done. Yeah. Well, and it's not only that, but also that scene at the very end of the episode where they're. They're playing the subtext. They're playing every layer of reaction that they can possibly have, but mm-hmm. also keeping it a little close, just keeping it a little bit hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's wonderfully done. And, and I think that it is also a tip of the hat to uh, Jonathan Frakes because he's the one telling them what to do and how to play it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so, that's um, true. Yeah. I, I will say you are going to be fantastic on our Guiding Light podcast. Can we now please mm, talk about the yeah. important stuff in this episode? <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. What can we say about the cast, John? What can mm. we say about the cast? Ooh. Oh. While a friendly, democratic people, they're driven by suspicion, deviousness, and paranoia. And that, you know, robs them of a real future. I gotta say, sometimes science fiction is funny. It really seems outlandish. Who can imagine such a society in any age? Uh, I'm stumped. Yeah. I'm really, yeah, I'm stumped. Uh that's literally all I've got. I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> yeah, that that we can we can leave that there, and we could also just reread that segment at the end of the show <laughs> when we say what is it all about. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe yeah. we'll do that. But you've got some other stuff too. Yeah, just mull it over for a little bit. Um, I do like that we have an insight into uh, Picard's command style. That, that sometimes it's all about projecting, quote, an appearance of confidence. Okay, now having heard him say that out loud, does this change mm-hmm. your feeling about when Data was such a hard-nosed captain in the Gambits? Well, uh, the, all the Gambits. All the Gambits. Um, yeah, no, I, actually, that, that's exactly what I thought of when that scene played out. I, I, there's still something kind of... There's still something a little artificial about Data doing it, but then, hey, Data. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's an artificial right? intelligence, so cut him some slack. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. Um, or, I'm sorry, he's a manufactured intelligence. He is. Yeah. He is, yes. Yeah, the intelligence is real, but yes. it's manufactured. Yes. Um, still with that relatively new intelligence smell, though. 
Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you wanted to really split hairs, uh, Picard has to do things by his gut. And and we have to assume that not in every situation does he know exactly what the right outcome should be and exactly what the right uh, uh, actions should be to get there. So sometimes he's got to go to his gut um, and sometimes acting like he knows what he's doing is the right thing to do. Now, right. I don't know that data can necessarily make that call that he needs to go with his gut because he doesn't know exactly what to do. So he's got to act the role that that's a whole other level of of applying ideas to data that data may not necessarily have but yes as far as data learning something about behavior picking up the 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 poses of being the captain mm -hmm. yes yeah because he he studied picard and picard puts on that face he puts on that stature when he's in the role and we've talked about it i know we talked about it on the gambits but um i mean he's watched jellico he's watched Riker, he's watched picard I mean, you can say acting. You can also say projecting. I mean, he mm -hmm. is projecting a. Um, um, nah. He's projecting an air of of confidence, the same way same way that Picard does. Yeah, not in the, the exact same way, but as Picard admits in this episode, yeah, sometimes you just got to seem like you know what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and Data is doing that, you know, all the way through, even though what he's doing is not very active, and that's that's what sort of upsets Worf. Sure. Data would have been fine all the way through. It was Worf actually undermining it. That sort of. Yeah. But you know what? We're talking now about an episode that was like four or five ago, and we should go ahead and keep talking about this one, huh? Well, I think what we can say, or at least what I think, is that it's a, a legitimate command skill, a legitimate command tactic to yeah. project an appearance of confidence, even if there is maybe not a whole lot of confidence to back it up, you know. I, I'm not going to fault him for that. Um, we do have a good look at Star Trek diplomacy again in this episode. Remember a long time ago, Picard described it just as bluntly as he could. You try and you keep trying again and again and again, and you keep trying until you have a breakthrough. And if it takes a really long time to do it, well, you take a really long time to do it. Um, it Marek and really everyone from Casprit are so blinded by their own prejudices, by the indoctrination that they each have about the other, mm -hmm. um, that they, they, they simply can't do it. And it's interesting to see them taken out of their element and forced into that room to talk to each other. And Riker has clearly learned from the Picard doctrine, which is you keep talking. And you get them in there and you force them to talk to each other. And if it doesn't work, you do it again. And if it doesn't work, then you, you do it again. Do me a favor, though, because you say uh, forcing them out of their element. And one of them is literally forced out of her element. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even want to talk about, you know, whether it's OK for a man to teleport a woman. Let's just talk about the fact that these are people. These are xenophobes. These are people who want to be left alone. And Riker's like, yeah, but that's not going to work for me. So go ahead and beam one of them up. Yeah, well, it's a good thing that the prime directive does not apply here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. But but regardless, um yeah, I I I had a little bit of a problem with that, but then I also think, well, how did this episode begin? It began with the Prit actually intercepting a transporter beam. Yeah. And uh, kidnapping those people and putting them where they wanted them. So, so this is a thing that shouldn't be totally out of the ordinary uh, or totally out of the question. Hold on a second. Did you just make the case for two wrongs making a right? 
Maybe, maybe a little bit. Really? Well, maybe. All right. Maybe. All right. I'm just saying it might not be out of the out of the question. So I just want to make sure I've got the lines down. We're Starfleet. We never lie. We will occasionally kidnap. Yeah. Well, they didn't lie about what they were doing. <laughs> he, he just he just made it happen. Yeah. And so, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't look. I'm not saying it was wrong. I, I think mm-hmm. I probably am saying it was wrong, <laughs> but I, it just it, it it sort of it made me wonder a bit. It was not as hinky as when Data again back in the gambits. Mm-hmm. Boy, that that show's given us a whole lot, huh? I know, right? Uh, it li- lied about the uh, bringing the Klingon on board. Yeah, right. You, the, we need yeah. a health inspection, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to need you off your ship for a while so we can quote do a health inspection. End quote. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's only because it wasn't discussed at all. That had they discussed it, had there been like part of an act where like, well, we could do this, you know, I think probably everybody on board would have said, ho, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> really? But really, actually, the only one who knew that Riker was going to do that was um, was Worf. And what were the odds that what were the odds that Worf would have gone for that? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty yeah. high. I'm going to go yeah, with pretty, pretty high. Pretty decent. Yeah. 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 It's like betting on the uh, on the globetrotters over the generals. <laughs> right. Um but see, in this episode, we learn a little something of the mechanics of the Federation. Like, I like that we had that moment saying that, all right, in 2150, Earth has a united government. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I hope I live to see 2150. <laughs> um, but we oh. learned something about the mechanics of the Federation that everyone in it has entered as a unified world. Uh, which is an interesting idea. And I, you wonder, well, does the Federation expect each world to have done that on their own? Is mm. there some other, oh, let's say cowboy diplomacy at work where other Federation starships are showing up and beaming people up against their will and forcing them to have a conversation so they can move that along? Or uh, would that be, oh, maybe, you know, look down upon if the, the commander of another ship had done that kind of thing or involved themselves to that level? You know, what's really weird about that is you and I often, I don't want to go so far as say complain, but we talk a lot about the monocultures that we come across in Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the, one of the, one of the primary tenets of Star Trek is idic, infinite diversity and infinite combination. But if mm-hmm. you're going to be in the Federation, you have to have all come together and coalesced around at least one government, if not one idea. Right. And then we come to a planet and it's like, look at them. They're all information traders. Well, what were the odds, huh? Who, yeah. who, who would have thought that would happen? Well, right. they wanted to be in the Federation, so they have to be. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, well, that made me wonder, you know, what what is the benchmark for being a unified world? You know, <laughs> it, because it, literally the, somebody from the Federation could show up and say, yes, we're one planet and we have one kind of uh, call it a prime minister, a president, uh, a leader, whatever you want to. We've got one system of government. Heck, we even got one kind of currency. We're that Mm. good. You know, we all agree upon it. Um, But within that, are there... Are there different religions? Are there different religious sects? Are there... uh, uh, you know, are, are there people who love certain kind of movies and and hate the people who hate other kind of movies? You know, there's right. all kinds of things, depending on the size of the world, that could drive those people apart. And as a federation, at a certain point, just kind of draw a line. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to do the uh, 
uh, Captain's Log. We, we've come up to the planet Sneech. Their mm-hmm. inhabitants are interesting because some of them have stars upon Nars. <laughs> right. And others yes. do not. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. wow. Well, they should be fine for the Federation. Oh, no. Wait, the ones with stars are not happy with it. No, nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. they're not mm-hmm. Federation material, sadly. No. Yeah, so there's a, a lot more negotiation, I think, there that, that uh, has to go on. But it's an interesting idea, and I'm glad that they presented it as such. Anxious to see if that plays out in other episodes that we encounter down the road. Um, and I guess my, my last kind of idea here to mull over a little bit before mm-hmm. we wrap it up is um, it would be horrible to read each other's thoughts. Um, we had, uh, going back last week, so we had a very interesting take on telepathy in Dark Page. Yeah. Because the Cairn were portrayed as this very pure, kind of very innocent race because they couldn't have secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, and they evolved that way. Who knows from what and, and into what, but they evolved that way. So that's just the way they are. And they didn't even have a word for privacy which was a fascinating idea. And and it's to show directly a contrast with us that we are not like that at all. And and not even the Betazoids are like that at all. They they like their privacy. And Deanna being half human was uh, was on board with that too. Um, but it, just that little glimpse into Picard and Dr. Crusher, these are two people who like each other. They like each other quite a bit, in fact. Um, but they're also bickering telepathically. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're, they're also finding fault with each other telepathically. Now, in a very nice way, they wrap it up the end where they, they have a laugh. They, they, they share something that, that no other humans have been able to share. And they do have a laugh about it. And this is kind of a nice little inside joke that they have. But, um, I was thinking it would be terrible in any and every situation to be able to read what somebody was thinking. That it's a good thing that we don't have that ability. That you don't. (laughs) With Picard and Crusher's constant mind meld, unmelded, it is time to see what we can take from Attached. Ken, I have a very strong feeling. I, I, I'm just, I'm going to intuit that uh, that we've arrived at the part of the show where where you and I both might have some final words, some final thoughts about the episode attached, and uh, and maybe for the people who are listening at home, they might even uh, they might even be able to read in my mind what I'm about to ask you, which is, uh, does the episode hold up? And I'm Canray. Oh, yeah. See, we've, we did. Okay. Yeah. Oh, see, we, we've okay, gotten to. I'm yeah. Sorry. If you were to just go back like yeah. 40 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Roughly. All right. mm-hmm. um, does the episode hold up? I, I am, I am happy to tell you, sir, we have finally found the balance. Um, I think between some of your favorite kind of Star Trek and some of my favorite kind of Star Trek. This mm-hmm. is an episode that gives us character development and Star Trek in the same episode, not just characters wearing Starfleet outfits being developed. I think it gives mm-hmm. us both. It gives us an exploration of the intricacies of friendship and romance, uh, plus a look at a seriously screwed up set of values 
uh, that end up robbing two civilizations of a better tomorrow. Yes. I, I feel like this is, this is, I mean, I, I personally, I might be fine without the, without the romance part. And it's not that I'm anti-romance. It's just, it's a lot of character development, but I did not feel like one came at the expense of the other in this episode. Yes. I felt like, um, I mean, we already talked about how great the acting was between Gates McFadden and, and, uh, and Patrick Stewart. That took us to how good the direction was uh, from Jonathan Frakes. Um, I can't believe a 23-year-old kid wrote this. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's, there's a lot about this episode that's wonderful. Is it the most action-packed? No. Could the wardrobe have been better? Sure. But, I mean, there's a lot to really like about this episode, and so I, you know... The one thing, if I'm going to be mean, I do have to wonder if it holds up as well as it does because we've been through uh, just like a lot of not so fun season seven so far. But I don't think it's that. I really think that this episode, you know, it's thrown into season four or season five. This is still a good episode. And so I personally think, yes, this episode holds up. Uh, what about you? Uh, it's funny that, you know, we don't read each other's notes before we do the show because. Yeah. You and I kind of had the same notes on this. <laughs> oh, okay. um, I, I said that this feels like a return to Star Trek. And yes, you could have done this in another season. However, I'm glad that we don't have this in another season because you needed that Picard Crusher relationship to mature. We needed to sit on that for a while before they introduced it. Because had this occurred in season three, I, I fear that we would just be waiting another four seasons to say, okay, are they are they ever going to talk about that again? That they <laughs> there's a thing because yeah. we don't really know. Like that time on Mash when Hawkeye and Hot Lips sort of got together, mm, mm -hmm. and then the next week they hated each other again. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and for however many seasons after that, they were still sort of on each other's backs. Yeah, I, so we're we're back to Star Trek and and almost. Jokingly, like the the long discussions about diplomacy and planetary politics, like those are the things that people make fun of for sucking the life out of Star Trek. And yet here it is. And it's kind of wonderful. It's mm -hmm. done well. It's painted with broad strokes. That's fine. But it's done well. And and it's engaging. And it's entertaining. Um, like we said, the, the Picard and Beverly stuff is fantastic. Um this is kind of the perfect season seven episode. We, you take the very central Star Trek theme in here about diplomacy, but we also, as you mentioned, you had that deepening of character and relationships and, and not in a weird, like uh, interface where it just felt like, well, we haven't done anything with Jordy yet. Right. <laughs> so right. uh, he's got a mom. Sure. Okay. Please interface. How about Dark Page? How about just last week? It's like, yeah, oh, here's yeah, yeah. Mad Caplocks on the Troy, who, oh, it turns out has been hiding a secret for 30 years mm -hmm. about a dead child. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there, there's two examples out of about a million ways that this could have been screwed up. Mm -hmm. uh, but they didn't hear. They did not screw this up in the least. Um, and, and again, we mentioned it before. Gates McFadden is so good in this, and she usually isn't given enough to do. Yeah. Uh, this is a shame that she was not given more to do because uh, she's wonderful in this. But th that's all the Star Trek stuff. That that that's all the the fun character stuff and the and the action and just saying that the episode holds up. And and yes, we very much agree the episode holds up. But 
What's at the heart here? What's the message of this episode? Well, let me answer that question with a couple of other questions. Okay. What can we say about the cast, John? Mm. While, while a friendly democratic people, they are driven by suspicion, deviousness, and paranoia. And that robs them of a real future. Uh, it, it seems outlandish to me. Uh, who could imagine such a society at any age, you in any time, on any planet? Who, who could ever think that such a thing might uh, might happen? It's so funny that that sounds so familiar yeah. to yeah. something that you said about, I don't know, seven minutes ago. I know. I said I was going to leave it there, and yet I picked it up again. But I'm just going to leave that here again. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking if you wanted to, you know, instead of asking a question, if you wanted to answer it, I would think um, that a society driven by suspicion, deviousness, and paranoia um, has no real future. It may not be uh, as much of a society as you like to think. Yeah, look, it's Star Trek saying, get it together. This is Star Trek saying, if you want that cool future that's in Star Trek, Mm -hmm. you have to start acting like the cool future that you're going to get in Star Trek. Yeah. And I, I look at the diplomacy message here as uh, well it's a couple of things that, that are related that uh, um, when either side stops talking then both sides have lost immediately yeah. um, and it, yes paranoia is such a driving factor for both the prit and the cast that paranoia is a very bad way to establish diplomacy and the only way you will find any sort of common ground is by sitting down at the table and by, here's the by, thing and here's the thing, too. Forgive me. Here's the thing, too. If you are not certain that it's going to go okay, do like Picard did. Act like it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. because if, you, if, you, if you're constantly sitting there going, no, that's mine. No, that's mine. No, get away from me. No, get away from me. No, I can't trust you. No, I can't trust you. I mean, even if the people that you're dealing with are completely trustworthy, like the Federation, like Starfleet, uh, they're going to back away because there's no dealing with you. Because if you're that suspicious, if you're that, if you're that paranoid... I mean, then you're, I mean, you're constantly looking for something to be screwed up. And at that point, then you're just going to screw something up. Uh, You can, you can go more the Picard route and be like, yeah, this is going to be fine. Even if you're not hundred percent certain, you go ahead and act that way. And maybe it will. I mean, you still keep your eyes open. You don't go blindly into it, but you go into it as opposed to, you know, like, like, like pulling up your feet and like a, like, and, and uh, hiding yourself like in a ball in a chair waiting for something terrible to happen. Yeah. There, there's a line that Picard has in this episode that is clearly written for the predicament that he's in with Beverly, but it also is clearly about what's happening on the Enterprise between the Cass and the Prit and uh, um, uh, Riker's negotiation of their situation. And it's a great line. There's a solution to every puzzle. It's just a matter of finding it. Yeah. What else? Say, say, say what you want. <laughs> I'm not talking about Picard's feelings for Beverly, by the way. Okay. I'm talking about breakfast. Okay? okay. Both of them want something simple. They both, in fact, want the exact same thing. But she wants to impress him, and he doesn't want to hurt her feelings. And so when neither of them actually says what they want out of deference to the other, mm-hmm. neither one gets what they want. Hmm. 
just, I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, certainly you do want to be nice to someone, right? Like if you, like if you get to somebody's house and they've made like, you know, some giant eight course meal and you're like, no, I want a sandwich. Okay. That's rude. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but I mean, if you're doing this every day, you could actually say, Hey, tell you what, why don't we just do sandwiches tomorrow? Right. I mean, yeah. they, they've both been basically, while they certainly really enjoy each other's time, you can tell that while they certainly really enjoy being with each other. Uh, there was a part of it that wasn't satisfying either of them, but neither of them said. And so, you know, maybe they ought to have. So I think we can safely say that this episode has a a lot of messages, a lot of themes, and that they all pretty well hold up. Ah, Which is so neat. It's so great to be able to say, yeah, you know what? Every part of this episode, that's fun. It's been a while. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Uh, Roddenberry does so much stuff, cool stuff, including podcasts. You might be listening to one right now. So you can find out more about us and our partner shows, Women at Warp and Priority One, all at podcast.roddenberry.com. And while you're there, have a poke around at what else is on roddenberry.com. Hey, if you want to help us directly, you can do that at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That would be trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Force of Nature. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Will Picard and Crusher ever make a love connection? We will find out in 2 and 2 and several days. End transmission.